Hey, it's your host, Carter. I wanted to give you a little bit of a warning. Kids who are under the age of 13 might find some parts of our show a little bit scary, so listener discretion is advised. Now, enjoy the show. Yes? Boston Police, ma'am. We're here to inspect the house. Oh. Please. Please come in. Miss Borden. Miss Borden! May I help you? We'll need to inspect your belongings. Please step into the parlor as we work. Can't this wait? My sister is very fatigued. I'm afraid it can't, ma'am. So if you'll excuse me? What's going on? Please, just adjourn to the parlor. On August 6th, police combed through the Borden house, looking for anything that could constitute evidence. My mother, she left a note. It's somewhere here. Let me find it. Ma'am, please, take a seat. Just let me look quickly for it. We can find it without your assistance. Please. Ma'am. Don't lay your hands on her. They cursorily checked both Emma and Lizzie's clothing for any blood and bagged a broken hatchet as the possible murder weapon. And then they came back later that night, rocking the Borden sisters with the worst news they could imagine. Miss Borden. Yes, Bridget? What now? I apologize for interrupting your reading, but the police have returned. What is the meaning of this? You're interrupting a perfectly nice evening. Miss Borden, I would listen to what I'm about to say. Yes? After taking into consideration the evidence we collected, I've come to tell you that you are considered a suspect in your mother and father's deaths. What? That that can't be. You will be called for an inquest in the coming days. I didn't do it. You don't understand. I didn't do it. Please, cooperate fully with the investigation. Good night. I didn't do it. Lizzie, it'll be all right. You can't do this to me. I didn't do it. <laughs> oh, Miss Borden, please don't cry. You'll see the truth. I know it. Welcome to Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. This is episode number 24 of Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, and the conclusion to our Lizzie Borden investigation. If you want to review an episode of Unsolved Murders or hear our investigation into other cases, you can find them all on your favorite podcast directory. Don't forget to subscribe. You can also listen on our website, parcast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. And now, back to Lizzie Borden and her infamous acts. Keep the presses hot. We're running out of papers. The news of the murder spread like wildfire, and the papers were quicker to name a suspect than the police. The Fall River Herald wrote its speculation that a Portuguese laborer was under investigation. Can I help you? Yes. Mr. Borden, I... I'm quite busy at the moment. Will this be quick? Sir, it's been two weeks. I've been working on the property at Warner. I haven't received any money for any of that time. Where are you going with this? I'm not looking to cause trouble. I just want the wages due to me. I'm the only one supporting my family. You have children, yes? I don't see what that has to do with this situation. Are you threatening my family? No, no, sir, not at all. I'm just trying to relate my situation to you. Do you have any idea the shame you would feel not being able to put food on their tables at night? I would not be aware. I'm a hard-working man who despises laziness. I've always been able to provide. But, sir, this is money I am owed. I'm not asking for an advance of payment. Well, I'm not a bank. I don't happen to have the money on hand. You can call back later. Mr. Borden, I need... I told you I'm very busy. 
You're welcome to call back later. Well, the papers weren't content to just name their own suspect. They also decided to back up their theory with their own invented facts. The report added that there was medical evidence to suggest Abby Borden's murderer was a tall man who struck her from behind. There was no such evidence, but the story resonated with the public for a time. Well, the story went away, however, when it proved to be almost completely fabricated by the papers. And at the same time, another, much more intriguing suspect came to the public's attention. Hello, sir. I'm Todd Kent, Boston Daily Globe. Oh, hi, Mr. Kent. How long have you owned this shop? Oh, my goodness. Uh, going on 30 years now. Uh, and my pappy ran it before me. So you're familiar with the uh, Borden family? Why, certainly. They were regulars. Uh, Lizzie was the one who'd usually come in to pick up the groceries. Or the servant, Bridget. Ever notice any strange behavior from any of them? No. Lizzie was a very good follower of Christ. Oh, well, now, there was perhaps one oddity. Oh, yes? She tried to purchase prussic acid not but three days ago. I found it very odd. What could she need that for? A woman buying an odd, toxic chemical before a murder was too juicy a bone not to dig into. The Boston Daily Globe took this information and ran with it. They also added more to the fire, saying, Lizzie and her stepmother never got along together peacefully, and for a considerable time back, they have not spoken. Other papers jumped to defend Lizzie. The Boston Herald looked at her heavy involvement in the church and the Christian community and decided she was above suspicion, someone who had never done an unkind thing in her life. But it wasn't the papers who were responsible for charging a suspect with the crime. Have you examined the body yet? I gave the mother a once-over. That was about all I could stomach. I hope you took extensive notes. Did it strike you as odd? The lack of blood? What on earth are you talking about? There was more than enough blood to fill a tub. There was blood on the bodies, yes, but nowhere else. No blood from any attempts to escape. No blood on the floor. And most interesting, no blood on any object. How do you mean? Where's the weapon? Hell, before we find that out, What's the weapon? Whatever hacked this poor couple to death? We either haven't found it, or it's been cleaned exceptionally well. Though the police were confused by some aspects, they did come to the conclusion that only someone within the Borden household could have committed the crime. Since Emma wasn't home when the murders occurred, Lizzie became the next best suspect. True to the police's word, a district attorney came to collect Lizzie for questioning two days after she was named as a suspect in the murders. They met a drugged, barely coherent woman. Lizzie was prescribed morphine before the trial for her nerves, and the frequent doping put her in a perpetual state of haziness. At what time did you exit the barn? I don't know. Can you give me your best estimate? I'm no good at arithmetic. Lizzie was erratic and nonsensical, and when she was coherent, she was belligerent. You said you heard a distress call when you entered the house. No, I didn't. You didn't hear anything? Father was sleeping. It was quiet. So you lied to the police. I what? So you mistakenly misreported to the police. I must have. I... I don't... Miss Borden? Miss Borden? Yes? I would appreciate it if you didn't nod off right in front of me. Do you understand how serious this is? Of course. So you understand that I have the power to suggest you go to trial. And you understand that if you're found guilty, you could hang. Hang? Yes, Miss Borden. So I suggest you start taking this seriously. 
Lizzie was not allowed an attorney while she was questioned, lending another layer of stress to the already fragile woman. I want to speak to Emma. You can as soon as you answer my questions. You don't understand. I need to speak to Emma. What's so urgent? I can't. I can't concentrate. If you tell me the truth, you won't need to remember a lie. I just need Emma. Or Maggie. Maggie? Our maid! Our Maggie! Bring me my Maggie! The district attorney could barely get Lizzie to string a sentence together and even point-blank questions through her. I helped Father take off his boots. I gave him his slippers. He loves his slippers. Andrew was wearing his boots in the official crime scene photographs. Where were you when Mr. Borden arrived home? I was reading a magazine, having a nice rest. Became... I was doing the ironing. His shirts were so frightfully wrinkled. Became... I was upstairs. I was just coming downstairs when Maggie let him in. After three days of interrogation, Lizzie was formally arrested and carted off to jail. The trial began in June of 1893. From the start, the trial was a circus, and the police finally managed to wring a reaction out of Lizzie. I understand we are to see a new piece of evidence? Yes, Your Honor. You may proceed. Both victims suffered blows to the head, as you can see. Please, silence in the courtroom while we are speaking. <gasps> Lizzie, are you all right? My God, she's fainted. Lizzie! Order! Order! Someone help her up! Andrew and Abby's heads were removed by the coroner, and the degloved skulls were submitted to the court as evidence. Lizzie fainted immediately upon seeing them. Though, to be fair, so would most people seeing their parents' decapitated skulls. Lizzie was removed from the courtroom to recover, and the heads were later buried with the rest of the Bordens' bodies. How could they do that? How could they? How could they? Try to calm down. Deep breaths, miss. Nice and slow now. Here, take your medicine. Careful now. Not too much. And their heads weren't the only body parts abused during the trial. Andrew and Abby's stomachs were dissected, checking for poison or the prussic acid the prosecution desperately wanted to pin on Lizzie. But there was no evidence at all of foul play. The violent food poisoning that struck the family was ruled to be only that, food poisoning. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. Despite what seemed like overwhelming evidence for the prosecution, nothing stuck to Lizzie. It was all ruled conjecture or coincidence. The defense relied almost entirely on cross-examinations of the state's witnesses. As for their own witnesses, they mostly brought in just a few neighbors. I believe it was around, say, 11 o'clock when I saw a strange man I'd never seen before standing by their home. Yes, 11 o'clock. There was a strange man nearby. The next morning, well, we all know what happened then. A uh, pale-faced man, somewhere around 10.30 p.m. on August 4th. I saw him just standing there, watching on the sidewalk near number 92 Second Street. They also brought in a plumber and a gas fitter to testify that they had been in the Borden's barn loft a day or two before the murders. This was done to throw suspicions on the police's claims that Lizzie's alibi didn't make sense because dust in the loft seemed undisturbed. But for the most part, the defense just relied on the inconsistencies in the state's witnesses. Several key testimonies contradicted one another. We found a hatchet in the barn, yes. Was it connected to the handle? No, but it was next to it, broken off. Your colleague mentioned a broken handle next to the hatchet head. Do you recall the state of it? There was no handle. I'm sorry? There was a head. 
but no handle. We searched, but we couldn't find a match. That's interesting. Why would he say you found one? I don't know. They also cast doubt on the prosecution's timeline and found other holes. The axe the state brought in as evidence had no blood on it, and the alleged missing handle was never found. And in the 8 to 13 minutes they claimed were between Andrew Borden's death and Lizzie Borden's call to Bridget Sullivan, one woman completely cleaned the blood off of herself, her clothes, and the murder weapon, and then had time to hide the murder weapon. Well, the defense didn't buy any of it, and the prosecution had no good answers. Miss Sullivan, did you enjoy working for the Bordens? Yes. You hesitated. Why? I... I don't know, sir. You look very nervous. I am. I've never had to testify before for anything. Tell me again about that morning. I was tidying up, sir, as I always do. I finished the downstairs parlor and went upstairs to air the linens. What time was this? Perhaps 11. And Lizzie and Andrew remained downstairs? Yes. Yes, Mr. Borden was resting, and I heard the door close when Lizzie left for the barn. You heard the door? Yes. But you didn't hear the door when the intruder came in and murdered Mr. and Mrs. Borden. Well, no. Uh, No, I must have been too focused. Miss Sullivan, you've never testified before, so please allow me to remind you. Everything you say on this stand must be the truth. Any lie you tell is a crime. A very serious crime. Do you understand? Yes. So you heard Lizzie leave the house. You're quite certain. Well... While I was upstairs, I heard the door close, and we were the only ones in the house at that time. Mr. Borden was fast asleep. It had to have been Lizzie leaving. Thank you, Miss Sullivan. That will be all. Lizzie could never, she could never have done something so horrible as this. It's simply impossible. Bridget's testimony helped put Lizzie in a more favorable light. The defense also had a star witness of their own, none other than Lizzie's sister herself, Emma Borden. Lizzie, well, Lizzie loved our father. We both loved him. They had such a strong, close relationship. You saw that gold ring, the one found on his little finger, when, when... When the body was found? Yes, yes. He was wearing it still. But Lizzie gave him that ring. 10 or 15 years ago, he loved it, and her, dearly. What about Lizzie's relationship to her mother? Do you mean our stepmother? Yes, excuse me. Their relationship was cordial. No one can replace your true mother. Anyone in the courtroom who suffered a loss of their mother will attest to this, but the two got along fine. Really? There was no contention between the two? Well, there was mild contention. But nothing more than you'd see in any household. Nothing remarkable. There were no arguments. So bad they would drive Lizzie to kill? No, of course not. And there you have it. Lizzie Borden is an upright, good Christian woman. Perhaps she had her sour days, but who doesn't? Who in this courtroom can honestly say they've never had reason to frown? That does not make her a killer. The defense also tried to get Emma to account for the very strange story of Lizzie burning her dress, hoping she would say that the family made a habit of disposing of old clothing, dirty clothing, by burning. But the court ruled the evidence inadmissible. 
Speaking of the dress burning, by far the most interesting testimony the state had on their side came from Alice Russell, the family friend who allegedly saw this strange act. Lizzie came over to visit the night before. It was very peculiar. Peculiar in what way, Mrs. Russell? Well, it was late. My husband was already asleep. I was just finishing a chapter of the book I was reading before going to bed myself. And when Lizzie Borden came over to visit, what did the two of you discuss? She told me she was going on vacation soon. She seemed worried and she felt there was uh, something hanging over her. She said there was something hanging over her? Yeah. Um, but she couldn't tell what it was. She said, uh, well, she began talking about her parents' extreme stomach sickness. Did she say what caused it? Mm, she mentioned something about um, bad baker's bread. And she mentioned again that she was afraid something was going to happen. <laughs> something was going to happen. That sounds ominous. It sounded even more ominous coming from her mouth. She said she wanted to go to sleep with one eye open half the time for fear somebody might burn the house down or hurt her father because he was so discourteous to people. Very interesting. Now, I'd like to turn the jury's attention to the Sunday after the murder. You saw Lizzie Borden burning a blue dress. Yes, I, I did. Did Lizzie explain why she was burning the dress? When I asked her what she was doing with the dress, she said, I'm going to burn this old thing up because it's covered with paint. When the defense cross-examined her, they tried to push the idea that there was no way a guilty person would so brazenly destroy evidence in front of a witness. However, this cross-examination only brought more strange details about Lizzie to light. According to Lizzie's account, there was a note her mother left saying that she had left the home. This is why Lizzie didn't look for her mother's body after finding her father's. This note was never found in the police's search through the home. Alice said she sarcastically said to Lizzie that her mother must have burned the note. Lizzie, stone-faced and serious, responded. Yes, she must have. However helpful this may have been for the district attorney, the state was dealt a critical blow by the three-judge panel. Your Honors, surely you understand the importance of this inquest. It is, after all, the inquest of the charged suspect. Mr. Moody? Her inquest cannot be submitted into evidence by the prosecution. The panel of judges came to the conclusion that Lizzie, at the time of the coroner's inquest, was essentially a prisoner charged with double homicide. Her testimony at the inquest, without an attorney, was involuntary. She should have been warned of her Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. The state argued that she was only a suspect, not a prisoner, so she didn't need to be read her rights. They also argued that her statement should be admitted anyway because she wasn't coerced into a confession. In fact, her entire statement, contradictory as it was, was a denial. The judges rejected this argument, and before June 14th, the day the prosecution rested its case, they were dealt yet another blow by the judges. The state wanted the jury to hear the testimony of Eli Bentz, the man who Lizzie went to in an attempt to purchase prussic acid. While the jury was excused, the state tried to establish the qualities, properties, and uses of prussic acid through medical experts, druggists, furriers, and chemists. The judges, after listening to the foundational case, said the evidence should be excluded. The jury would not hear from Eli Bentz. Finally, after all the evidence was heard and each suspect thoroughly grilled, the trial concluded after 15 days. The jury was sent to deliberate and returned an hour and a half later with their verdict. Will the defense please rise? 
My father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom. Mr. Foreman, has the jury agreed on a verdict? We have, Your Honor. How say you? We, the jury, find Lizzie Borden not guilty. Yes! <sighs> Members of the jury, listen to your verdict as it stands recorded. You say you find Lizzie Borden not guilty on the charge of murder. Yes, Your Honor. Thank you. In under the running time of most Hollywood blockbusters, Lizzie was found to be innocent of one of the most brutal double killings in American history. Oh, I knew it. I just knew it. They couldn't have found you guilty. Congratulations, Lizzie. Thank you. Oh, Lord, thank you. You are an angel from God. Justice was served today, Miss Borden. I only hope this will allow your family time to properly grieve. Emmy, please, I'd like to go home now. Of course, we'll go home. The murders baffled police, who couldn't figure out any other possible explanation for the slayings. Lizzie was their prime suspect, the most logical choice, and yet she walked free. And years later, a new wrench was thrown into the works. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now let's continue the story. On her deathbed, Bridget Sullivan, the Borden's former maid, unloaded a shocking turn of events to her sister. I do have a confession. I'll fetch the priest back. No. No. Just you, please. All right, I'm, I'm listening. I did something so awful. So awful. Just terrible. You've never done a terrible thing in your life. No. No, you're wrong. I've done such terrible things. <coughs> Drink. Come on now, take little sips. Do I want to hear this, Bridget? Please. Please. Tell me. The Bordens. Bridget? She used to call me Maggie. No one stopped her. No one. Oh, such a terrible thing. Bridget, delirious and sick, allegedly confessed to obstructing the trial. I heard her on the stairs, but I couldn't tell them. I couldn't. Bridget, focus on me. Look at me. You lied? I couldn't tell them. They'd hang her. They'd kill her. Did Lizzie tell you to lie for her? Did she tell you to do this? She doesn't know. Oh, she mustn't know. What a disaster. Oh, my lord. Oh, my lord. I broke an oath. They swore me in and I lied anyway. I just wanted to help. I know. <laughs> Am I going to hell? No. No, of course not. Don't even think of it. The Lord is a God of mercy and forgiveness for the penitent. I don't want to go. I just wanted to help those poor girls. I just wanted to help. I know. I know. It's all right, Bridget. You just calm down. It's a terrible thing I've done. Terrible. Shh. Terrible. Shh. Don't excite yourself. <sighs> I'm going to fetch you another blanket. It's chilly in here. And then we're going to eat some nice soup, and you'll feel better. Thank you. And then we're going to forget we had this conversation, won't we? We'll just forget all about it. You won't tell? No. Because you're my sister, 
and I love you. Thank you. Try to rest while I fetch that blanket. Was it the ramblings of a dying woman, or did Bridget Sullivan knowingly alter her testimony to protect a guilty Lizzie Borden? Or was it really herself she was protecting? (laughs) Come sit with me. You know I can't stay. (laughs) The windows will wash themselves. Just one good rain. (laughs) (laughs) One minute more only, then I do have to get downstairs. (laughs) You could come by tonight, once Father and Mrs. Borden are asleep. I'll be asleep too. Not all of us can laze the morning away. Author Ed McBain put forth the theory that Lizzie and Bridget were lovers. Intolerance is no new phenomenon, and their relationship would have never been accepted in conservative 19th century New England. Did you hear that? It's nothing. It's never nothing in this house. It was Emma, most likely. I should go. You should stay. You know I can't. I'm going. I'm really going now. You're up late, Bridget. Good evening, Mrs. Borden. I was opening a window for Lizzie. It is warm tonight, isn't it? It was a very stubborn window. You'll be sure to grease it tomorrow, then. Of course, ma'am. Good night. Good night. If the women were in a relationship, it would seem logical that Bridget would say or do anything not only to exonerate Lizzie, but conceal her personal involvement with the accused. Rumors of Lizzie's lesbianism followed her throughout her life, well beyond the trial. But they did not persist for Bridget, who would eventually marry after the trial. So then what of her alleged confession? She was on the stairs. I heard her, but I lied. I lied. (coughs) Don't trouble yourself anymore. It's done. They would have hung her. But they didn't. It's all done now. Though she was exonerated, the stigma of the deaths and trial would haunt Lizzie for the rest of her days. What was it like being known as one of America's most infamous alleged murderers? Will the circle be unbroken? By and by, by and by, is a better home awaiting in the sky, oh, in the sky. Lizzie stayed in Fall River for the rest of her life, which ended in 1927. As infamous as she was, her life was not easy after the trial. After inheriting their father's estate, Emma and Lizzie moved into a home they named Maplecroft, where they lived together until 1905. You can picture happy gatherings round the fireside long ago. Lizzie was an outcast in Fall River society, never again welcomed despite the Borden sisters' fabulous wealth. But Emma and Lizzie couldn't even content themselves with an idle life of luxury. Everyone, drink, drink. No empty hands in my house. Lizzie? Lizzie? May I speak with you? After Emma, I'm entertaining. Confusing hangers-on for friends, Lizzie hosted lavish parties at Maplecroft, much to Emma's annoyance. In a party held in honor of actress Nance O'Neill, 
another rumored lover of Lizzie's, tipped Emma over the edge. I want these people out. I can't just tell them to leave. We're just getting started. They're drinking. Doesn't that upset you, Lizzie? It's for Nance. I don't care. I'd like them to leave, please. Perhaps in a few more hours. Fine, then I'll be leaving. Shortly after the party, Emma moved out of Maplecroft, leaving Lizzie behind. The sisters never spoke again. One by one their seats were emptied. One by one they went away. Now the family is parted. Will it be complete one day? Though the sisters stayed estranged for the rest of their lives, in death they were reunited promptly. Lizzie died of pneumonia in 1927 after a complicated gallbladder surgery, and Emma joined her sister a mere nine days later at age 73. The Borden sisters were buried side by side at a cemetery in Fall River. Fall River police did not bring anyone else up on charges for Andrew and Abby's murders after Lizzie was acquitted. But unless the Bordens staged the most elaborate suicides in history, the killer was the luckiest local in Massachusetts. She may have fooled the jury, but for our money, all signs point to a resentful Lizzie snapping and lashing out in a most permanent way. She had motive, opportunity, and a wealth of hatchets in the barn to choose from. She bought an estate nearly immediately with her father's inheritance money, and she never had to deal with the terror of a mother again. How could she have cleaned up the crime scene so quickly, you may ask? Well, perhaps the state's timeline wasn't entirely accurate. And, even more so, if she wouldn't have had time to do it, how would someone else have had time to break into the house, fail to wake Lizzie or Bridget, murder the parents, clean up, and remove all signs of a break-in? The defense, and initially the papers, may have thought it was some person angry about business dealings with Andrew Borden. But no suspect was ever brought in, and no evidence for any such person ever existing can be found. But what do you think? Who's responsible for the Borden murders? Weigh in on Twitter, at Parcast Network, or on Facebook.com slash Parcast with your own theories. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. Or through our website, Parcast.com. Again, that's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. Join the conversation on our ParCast Facebook page. You can tweet us at ParCast Network, all one word. We thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us again. If you liked what you heard, tell your friends. New episodes come out every Tuesday. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Ron and Max Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro with production assistance by Joel Stein, and written by Samantha Gurosh and Kenneth Martin. Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Z Cruz, Kimberly Holland, Mick Lambeth, Janice Liebhart, Nicholas Massu, Manuna Ryan, Stephen Pinto, and Vanessa Richardson. 